We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. We have, uh, we have Mark chapter 7 marked. I'll tell you what, before we pray, do me a favor. Just page over a few pages to Matthew 15 and stick a piece of your bullet in there or something. Matthew 15, Mark 7. And then, uh, and then we'll pray. Lord, you see the hands that are raised. And you know the hearts and the stories connected to those. It's, uh, I'm sure, just a variety of needs, Lord. Even as we come to your word, we see uh, people coming to you with desperate needs, coming for help, being brought by others, uh, being interceded for by family. And so, Lord, whether these needs are, are personal or on behalf of someone else, Lord, I pray that even as we pray now, their hearts would be going up to you, looking up, expectantly, hoping, wanting, waiting. Father, meet the needs. Answer the prayers that we, we can even, uh, you even are, are able to distinguish the groans that can't be uttered from the deepest part of our gut when we don't even know what to pray. That your spirit can pray in and through us. Lord, we have no other hope on earth besides you. And so, Lord, we, put, we come putting our trust in you knowing that you're faithful, knowing that your will is perfect, knowing that your sovereignty is complete, and knowing that your power is awesome. Where else would we go, Lord? Only you and you alone have the words of eternal life and the power to heal. So it's in Jesus' name that we come to your word. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we are in Mark chapter 7, still in the with the disciples in the Jesus School of Ministry. We'll pick up in verse 24. It says, From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden, for a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him, to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. So that's the first of two stories. We'll look at verses 31 to the end of the chapter uh, after we get through this first section. This morning we have two stories, uh, two accounts. Both are involving uh, Gentiles, and uh, maybe you don't know this, but a Gentile, you would simply, simply say a, a non-Jewish person. This is a person that's not part of uh, the, the Jewish traditions, the Jewish heritage, the Jewish nation. And so uh, to the Jew... There was a great division, like oil and water, between the Jew and the non-Jew. Uh, they didn't really, uh, to say they didn't get along is an understatement. Uh, to say that they, they hated each other would be more accurate. And so there is this, this question as to, as they're in the school of, uh, the Jesus school of ministry, he's just talked to them about uncleanness, hasn't he? He's just talked to them about the ceremony of washing hands, how when they would go to the marketplace, if they happened to, rub elbows with, and they did likely in the marketplace, a a Gentile, that would make them unclean. And so they'd have to go back and they'd have to wash, bathe before they would then engage in 
any ceremonies that would be connected to God. Before they came in the presence of God, they'd have to bathe and get this non-Jewish uncleanness or dirt off of them. And so this could lead one to think that God has no desire for or interest in anybody but the Jews. And so Jesus is now continuing. He goes up to this region of Tyre and Sidon. We don't have really any other accounts of him going up there from the Sea of Galilee area or the Galilee region. Tyre uh, Tyre and Sidon are two uh, cities on the the port cities on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, modern day Lebanon. And, And these are about 30 miles to Tyre, about 50 miles to Sidon. Maybe you remember Jezebel from the uh, Old Testament. Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel was a Sidonian princess. She was from Sidon, that area. A Canaanite. She's, a, she's in Matthew calls her a Canaanite woman. So the, she's a Phoenician. We learned that. A Syro-Phoenician. Uh, Phoenician means, this will be interesting to you, Phoenician means purple people. Did you know that? I thought that was really cool. So I love words. And, and so Phoenician means purple people. They were uh, a seafaring people. And purple dye is what they were known for because purple dye was made from uh, grinding up a, a certain kind of sea snail. So they were, and it was very expensive to buy. So there was some wealth in, in this area. So Jesus goes up there. It was quite a trip going up from Galilee to that region. He's clearly going out of the boundaries of Israel to this distinctly Gentile area. He's going to have a conversation with this woman. She's going to reveal that she knows a little bit about him, maybe more. Maybe she understands more than his disciples do. Uh, There's going to be a second story here. Again, Gentile. uh, Again, in a a non-Jewish area. This conversation, again, a conversation, this conversation will be largely without words. It's with a man who's deaf. So there's a lot of parallels between these, these two stories. So he goes up to Tyre and Sidon. Some people say, you know, he's trying to get away from the big crowds around the Sea of Galilee, trying to escape and finally go on that retreat they'd been trying to get on for the last few chapters. So up they go. And he entered a house and wanted to, uh, and wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden. So he goes into a house. Whose house? We don't, it's a Gentile house, most likely, or a Jew that for some reason is living in that region. But he, he enters a house, <clears throat> again, trying to find uh, maybe some quiet time, some restful time. He didn't want anybody to know he was there. I'm sure he knew why he was there. Jesus doesn't go anywhere by accident. He goes into Samaria because he's got an appointment with a woman who'd had multiple husbands. And he goes into Tyre of Sidon. But he can't be hidden. This woman... She, she finds out he's there. She, she knows of his reputation. And she's got a, a desperate motivation, doesn't she? She's got a young daughter who is, the Bible tells us, demon-possessed. She has an unclean spirit. Uh, and, and this is motivation enough to give her incentive to get up and go. Now, I, one of the things that, that I've not been able to put my finger on in counseling and in talking with people because you got, I love to talk to people, talk to people about the Lord. I want, wish I could open up brains and see what makes people tick. It fascinates me. And, and what fascinates me is motivation. Like what motivates people? And what does it take to motivate someone? What does it motivate and what motivates an addict to finally give up their drug or their alcohol and to, to combat the, the pain and to deal with the pain and withdrawal that comes with that, when is the motivation to give that up finally greater than the internal drive or habit 
or, or motive, the dependency to keep drinking even though it destroys your life. I mean, I'd love to get down to that level. But I like, what I like about this woman is she's watching this control in her daughter's life. These are, these are the fallen angels that have, have left their first abode, Jude tells us. They've been cast down to earth and, and they uh, seem to like a place to hang out, to inhabit. And they find people uh, to inhabit. And this girl has somehow gotten herself involved in this Willingly, unwillingly, who knows? But no doubt this mom, any of you moms out there, you know how hard it is to watch your kids struggle. Dads, we know the same thing. Now, we don't know where her dad is. We don't know, is he alive? Is he dead? We, we don't know. But we know that his mom, her mom uh, is in a desperate situation. And she's in a place where she knows there's nothing she can do. You ever been there, mom? You ever been there, dad? Where you look at your kids and you've tried to fix it for the last two years, three years, five years, 20 years. And you finally get to that place and you go, I just can't fix it. If they don't want to be fixed, I can't fix it. It's something that they've got to come to. But what you can do, mom and dad, is you can pray. You can come to God. And I don't know why it's so hard. We'll, we'll exhaust every other resource. We'll exhaust every doctor, every counselor, every medicine, everything. We'll go everywhere else. What does it take? What incentive does it take for you to finally come to God on behalf of your kids? And I'm probably preaching to the choir here. I know you guys are, are probably those that are saying, amen, we're there, we're with you. Her social life has been affected. Her friendships have been affected by, by this. And so she comes on her daughter's behalf. The daughter's not there. The daughter's still at home, wherever home is in that region. And mom comes on, on behalf of her daughter. She's a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she kept asking him, continuing to ask him to cast a demon out of her daughter. Now, you've marked Matthew. Uh, I'll tell you what, let, don't go there. Let me just... Um, well, let, yeah, let's go there. Let's go to Matthew 15 real quick because I want you to see a couple of things about how she talks to him because Matthew fills in the rest of the story. The, only, only in Matthew and Mark is this recorded. Uh, no one else records this story. Look at uh, Matthew 15:24. Uh, I'm sorry, back up a little bit um, to 22. Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him saying, Have mercy on me. That's what she's asking. She's just simply asking God for mercy. I've prayed that prayer many times. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Only time, uh, Mark uses that word too. Only time that's used in, in Mark is in this story, but Matthew uses it here. O Lord. And she calls him son of David, which for a Gentile woman, she recognizes his significance in Israel. This is a, this is a term that a Gentile wouldn't know. Son of David, speaking of David, the king of Israel from, from years ago. She calls him by his messianic name, king of David, or son of David. And she says, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. And look at verse 23. He answered her not a word. He is seemingly ignoring her. And that's not the first time Jesus has ignored someone or seemingly ignored them when they've come uh, to him. You remember the woman that was caught in adultery? And they bring her, the, the Pharisees bring her to, to Jesus and say, well, should we stone her? And Moses says we should stone her. What do you say we, you know, what do you say we should do? And he's silent, doesn't say a word. It's almost as if he's not even listening to them. And he just bends down and begins to write in the, ground, in the, in the sand. 
So this is not the only time, but it's fascinating that she's coming begging for mercy, and he doesn't say a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, send her away, for she cries out after us. So there's that. The disciples are wonderful at telling people to get out of here. Go away. Back to Mark, if you would. And that gives us the, the, the introduction to, now Jesus does speak. So at first he's sort, sort of ignoring her. And when he does speak, he speaks to her in this mini illustration that, again, can be interesting to try to understand. He said to her, finally, uh, let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Interesting illustration, isn't it? Makes a little more sense if you if you know that uh, to the Jew, the Gentiles were referred to as dogs. Isn't that a wonderful way to be known? Isn't that a wonderful way? Wouldn't you love it when, if you knew there was a people that said, you know, these guys are dogs. Now, sometimes we, we hear about how those in the Middle East refer to us in America, or maybe those in Europe. The, the picture that we have in Americans is that we're all you know, self-centered and materialistic, and, and we don't have a great picture around the world of Americans. You know that. But the Jews looked at the Gentiles and said, these guys are like wild dogs. The implication of the, the term dog would be a scavenging, homeless, wild, unkept, uncared for, crazy animal. That's how they viewed the Gentiles. They don't know God. They have no sense of culture. They have no sense of religion. They, they worship these idols. But the word here is, is a little bit more affectionate. He calls her a little dog. It's the diminutive word, and it could mean also the pets. So it's a little bit better, but still a dog is a dog, right? So, you know, how would you feel if you got in a conversation with Jesus and in his illustration, he refers to you as a dog? I'm not sure that's helping my self-esteem. But he says, let the little children be filled first. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dog. So the picture he's painting is, look, you've, you've, you've come home from a long day at work. You've picked up takeout, you know, somewhere on your way home. And you get home and the kids are around the table. They haven't eaten all day. They're hungry. They just got back from school. And now it's time for dinner. And your pet dogs, are, you know, you got two or three dogs in the house. We got three. And they know when it's dinner time. We have one dog, Maggie. She will actually, when you're sitting at the table, she will actually put her chin up on your leg and just sit there and look at you like, I'm just waiting, just waiting for you to love me. If you love me, you'd give me something, you know. And Sandy, she'll do a dance, you know, she'll spin around just for food, very food-driven. So now there you are looking at your hungry children, and you say, you know what, kids? I tell you, I'm going to feed the dogs first. I'm going to put the Chinese food down on the ground, let the dogs have it, and then I'll give you whatever's left over. Is that what you would do in your house? You, you recognize there's an order. First, the kids get to eat. And then if there's any scraps or leftovers, maybe the, the dog can have, him, have it. Uh, and that's what he says. It's not good for me to throw the, to give the food that's meant for the children to the little dogs. And so what's the picture speaking of? Matthew, Matthew actually makes a reference to the fact that uh, Jesus says, I've come first and foremost for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus had come on a reconnaissance mission. We read Ezekiel 34 um, a number of weeks ago, and we talked about how the shepherds of Israel, the elders, the leaders of Israel, had done a poor job. They had fed themselves. They had fleeced the flock. They hadn't taken care of the sheep. And God says, I'm going to send a shepherd who's going to be a good shepherd, and he's going to regather the sheep that have been scattered. So Jesus comes as that good shepherd sent by God. His primary purpose is to regather the sheep of the nation of Israel. 
And then the sheep, and the purpose of Israel was then to be a light to all the nations so God would be glorified through Israel. But they rejected him. It didn't work out. And it was the Gentiles who end up accepting and receiving by faith Christ when he comes. So the idea is, is that there's an order. The first, the first program, uh, the, the, the first place where Jesus is going is to Israel. That's the children in, in the parable. These, the nation of Israel. His disciples are right there, the Jewish people. And so uh, verse 28 says, She answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. That is awesome. Now, remember, the disciples watched Jesus break bread and feed 5,000 people. Well, actually, we we talked about 10 to 15,000 people, maybe even more, with with five loaves and two fish. And yet they still, their hearts were hard and they didn't get it. This woman, this Gentile woman, takes Jesus' parable and uses it to show that she has this tremendous understanding of his ministry. And she says, okay, you're right. You're right about that. But if you think about the same story, those kids, as they're eating, they're they're dropping, they're being careless. You know, if you have kids, if you have kids, like we have this, this phenomenon of now being so busy that we eat in the car. And so we feed our children in the car. And so I was so thankful the day my kids, the day we graduated from diapers, car seats, and sippy cups was like grounds for a huge rejoicing. Because while the kids were young, our back seat was filled with crumbs and crackers and spills and everything because kids are just, they're eating and they can be careless and things drop. And so there's, the dogs are waiting for what the children have been careless with and, and dropped. And, and so that they can have what it is that's been discarded or left over or, or dropped. And the Jews will ultimately reject Christ and, and he'll be received by the Gentiles. And then ultimately, again, the Jews will be uh, brought to jealousy by the Gentiles receiving Christ. But that's for another time. Uh, so she finishes his parable and includes herself. She, says, she doesn't say, how dare you refer to me as a dog? She doesn't say, we should be, I want to be first. Because we got the, in America, we got the I want to be first mentality. What do you mean I'm not first? What do you mean I'm not the best? What do you, need, what do you mean I'm not most special? I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God. And that's what she's saying. She's saying, I know that your primary mission is to, to your own people, but I believe that there's enough grace even for a Gentile like me. And Jesus sees that in verse 29. He says, for this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. Matthew records, he looks at that woman and says, oh, how great is your faith. I mean, that is awesome. She was doing better than the disciples were doing. They'd been walking with him in school, and she's doing better at this than, uh, than they were. And when she had come to her house, verse 30 says, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. One more thing I want to mention is that uh, before we go on, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you'll seek me and find me when you search with me for me with all your heart. Jesus was wanting to be hidden in a house and, and this woman found out he was there. She, he, she knew his power and she knew her need and she took initiative and she went seeking, seeking the Lord. And if you seek, if you search, the Lord is already searching for you. 
And if you search for him with all your heart, I mean, if you do a half-hearted search, that ain't going to cut it. I mean, I'm neurotic about my stuff. I don't know if you're like me. Like, I got to know where every, my keys, my wallet, my cell phone. I, I've got to know, like, if, if one of those things is not in its place, I start to flip my lid. You know, I just can't function until I find them. And so I begin, you know, I grab the kids. I grab, all right, we got to find my, my keys are missing. And I know, I know where I put my stuff. So if they're missing, the, the search begins, and I can't function until I've found them. That's called a wholehearted search. That's where you are all invested. And if you, you know, when you, if you want God, he is so easy to find. He is right. Look around you. Look at, look at the trees. Look at the creation. He's revealed himself. And if you want to find him, he promises you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. And I believe that's what this woman did. And, and she came in prayer. She came to, on behalf of her young daughter in trouble. And that's the way to come. Come with your whole heart. Come knowing. Come in faith. Come believing. And watch what God does with that. So that's the, the one Gentile story. Next we go on to verse 31. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Ew. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said something I can't pronounce, Ephetha, that is, be opened. It's Aramaic. Don't worry about it. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure. How'd you like to be astonished beyond measure? Saying, He has done all things well. Not sure how he ended up on a cross. He makes both the deal, uh, both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So they leave Tyre and Sidon, uh, coming back uh, through the, the region of the Sea of Galilee. Decapolis, as it means 10 cities, Deca, uh, 10 polis city, 10 cities. These are Greek cities. These are Greek worshiping cities. You're going to have all of the, the usual Greek uh, idolatry in those cities. Jesus will come face to face with all, all of the temples to the various Greek gods in that region. This is mostly east of the Sea of Galilee, east of the Jordan River is where these cities are located. Mostly, again, Gentile regions. And, and so he's there, and if, if you don't go, don't go there now, but you can go back to Matthew, uh, that, the same chapter, and you can find out that there was a lot of healing going on. This was a big, a big tour of this upper region, and there's a lot of pe- people are coming to Jesus, again, in droves, one after the other, one after the other, being tossed at his feet so he can heal them. And so Mark is the only one that records this, and he gives us just a highlight of this one situation of, out of all these other healings that are taking place. And there's something he wants us to know here. So they, then they, friends, I guess, brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. We don't know how old he is. He, he's nameless here. Um, but his deafness, now remember, he is deaf in an era before technology. He is deaf in an era uh, before the Americans with Disabilities Act. He's deaf in an era before 
you know, there were all of these ways to accommodate uh, living with deafness, living with being hearing impaired. Um, we don't know what kind of language he had, if he had any language. We don't know what, what's the status of sign language. I mean, every, there's, it's easy to communicate. We can communicate things. We can point and, and, and all that kind of thing to try to communicate with someone who is deaf. Helen Keller said, Blindness separates people from things. Deafness separates people from people. Blindness separates people from things. Deafness separates people from people. The word infant means without speech. So it's connect, there's a stigma connected with uh, being, we even call it being dumb with, as being without speech. There's a stigma about it. Uh, there's a social stigma. Uh, again, it's very difficult to communicate. There's almost uh, a separation, again, between you, if you're deaf, and, and other people. You can't communicate. And if you can't communicate, it's hard to have a relationship. Um, read this interesting book a number of years ago. This is called A Man Without Words. And it's about a guy, when this woman meets him, he's 27, and he's deaf, and he's never learned that language even exists. He doesn't know things have names. It's amazing what we take for granted in terms of the ability to hear and to speak. So I just uh, wanted to read you this one section. This is about Helen working with Helen Keller. Helen grasped, grasped simultaneously the possibility of a code signifying our notions of things in the world and the meaning of the specific sign, and her teacher was writing on her palm, water. The entrance to language is the entrance to the human family. No one is fully human alone. So language is sort of what uh, binds us together, and it's, it makes us separate from the animals in a lot of ways. Now, animals do communicate, but not nearly on the level that humans do. And so his deafness hasn't evidently kept him from having some people in his life that care about him. All it says is they brought him. Is they, are they family? Are they friends? Are they, we don't know. Now, so socially, we know he's never listened to music. We don't know if he has any children or he's never heard the voice of his parents. Religiously speaking, those around him would say it's a result of his sin. He's being, he's being punished by God. They believe sin could happen in utero. So if you were born with a deafness or a blindness, they believe that was because either it was this, that the Jews asked Jesus that. Is it because he sinned or his parents sinned? I mean, someone's responsible. So all of this has, le have le has left this man uh, isolated in so many ways. Jesus comes to town. His reputation is there. Remember, there was a man who was demon-possessed in Decapolis. And Jesus cast the demons into the pigs, and, and the guy became the first evangelist in Decapolis. And so people know about Jesus. This guy was, was amazing, the guy that uh, Jesus had uh, cast the demon out. He was chained in the tombs, and then after the demons leave him, he's sitting and in his right mind. So the deaf man comes, and he's got an impediment in his speech. Now, we're going to come back to that. That doesn't mean he couldn't talk. It just mean it means it was hard to talk. So maybe if you've known someone who was deaf, um, I went to school with a girl who, had, who was the daughter of two deaf parents. Uh, she, she could hear, but both of her parents were deaf. And if you've ever heard someone who is deaf try to vocalize, they've never heard the word, so they can't imitate they don't learn by we learn by imitation we learn language by imitation and so that the deaf person never has the ability to actually even hear themselves speaking so their language uh, can be very if they will even speak 
it, uh, it's just uh, a lot of times grunts and, and sounds. Is there something else going on in his mouth? We don't know, uh, but he's gotten, his speech is affected. And they begged him, Jesus, to put his hand on him. Verse 33 is fantastic. He took him aside from the multitude. And you'll see in this how personal Jesus' understanding of you and me and him is. And this is something that's always been a, a, an area of comfort for me personally, is that each of us is created uniquely. You know, if you have more than two kids, you know everyone is unique. I mean, you might have ten kids, and they're all a variety, you know, that is just crazy different. They can be so different. And God is, he knows each one of us is uniquely different. And he knows how to speak to each one of us. He knows what your needs are. He knows how to talk to you. He can speak your language, so to speak. And so he takes this guy aside from the multitude. Why? He's going to, he can't, this guy can't hear him say, okay, hey, come on over here with me. Can't hear that. He can't hear anything. So Jesus, no doubt, you know, take, maybe takes him by the arm and leads him out of the crowd somehow. I don't know how, where, where they're going to get free, but he leads him out of the crowd. And he, no doubt, he is making eye contact. Eye contact is very important because this guy can't hear him. So he's got to get in, in the, so he can see him, so he can have his full attention. You know that even with kids. You've got to have their full attention. You've got to make eye contact. Must look eye. You've got to have eye contact. He takes him aside from the multitude, and he put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. All right, we've got to talk about spit for a minute here. You know, you produce two to four liters a day. That's just extra. You didn't need to know that. Um, this is not the only time Jesus involves spit. When can I say that in church, right? I'm saying spit in church. Where he involves spit in a miracle, in, in a healing. It's in, I wrote these down. In uh, Mark 8, we'll see that in a little bit. He spits on a guy's eyes. Now, that's considered an insult. To, if someone's, even in the Old Testament, if you spit on someone, that's considered insulting. And we even look down, if, if, if you see someone spit, I mean, that's kind of gross. We, we associate spit with transmission of disease and bacteria. You can get, you know, sicknesses from each other by spit. That's why we're crazy about washing hands and stuff. Because maybe you touch something and now you, you touch me and you got me sick. So it, it seems as if, and most people, how do you picture this? You know, it says he spat and touched his tongue. You know, did he, most people, I think most commentators think that he spit maybe on his fingers. <laughs> you needed the sound effect for that, right? Now, how did he convince this guy to stick his tongue out? I don't know. I mean, like, you know, communicating him, and then he touches his tongue. That's possible. And also the finger in the ears thing. When I was growing up, I grew up in the age of the wet willy. Anybody know that? That's when you, you kind of licked your finger and you stuck it. When, no one, when the person wasn't looking, you licked your finger and you stuck it in their ear. Like we thought of some cruel ways to torture each other, you know. But, but even without the wet willy part, just try even someone you know well Try to stick your finger suddenly in their ear and watch their reaction. I mean, I, I, you just like automatically pull away. So I'm trying to picture this. And I'm picturing Jesus like, here's a guy who's deaf. He's like, he can't hear anything. He lives in a bubble of so, somewhat isolation. And now this guy is a stranger. He doesn't know who he is. I'm sure they couldn't communicate. How do they communicate, you know, this is a healer to their deaf friend? And so all of a sudden, Jesus is looking at him and he goes, you know, tries to put his fingers in the guy's both ears. I'd be like, whoa, you know, 
pulling back. So we don't get all the, the description here. So I'm going to offer up some suggestions. I, I can't say that in the end it will really matter which is the case, but just because I like to make you think about the way we read Scripture. Because the word, he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ear, and he spat and touched his tongue. The word his is the same in all those instances. And it can mean him or her or himself or herself. It can be reflexive. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar. I did a lot of searching on this last night. And what I'm going to tell you, I didn't find anybody else propose this. That doesn't mean it's wrong. Uh, doesn't mean it's right. But I'm just offering it up for suggestions. Maybe if you're a Greek scholar, you can correct me on this. But far as I could tell, again, it's the same, it's the same word in Greek every time you see the word his. Sometimes it's used contextually of another person that's being spoken of, and sometimes it's used of, of yourself. Took him aside and put his fingers. That would mean, that would be an instance where he's speaking of his own fingers in, and then it would be taken as his ears. What if... Jesus took his own fingers and put them in his own ears. Just a thought, you know. Now again, the, the implication, or the normal understanding of this would be that Jesus touched him and healed him. And that's certainly possible. So I'm not saying, you know, don't, oh, Steve's teaching heresy. He's talking about Jesus putting his fingers in his own ears. I'm wondering if Jesus is not speaking sign language to this guy. Like, hey, I know you, you know, if he goes like that, the guy may be like run away. But maybe if Jesus put his fingers in his own ears, like, hey, I'm, I know that you're deaf. I know that you got a problem with hearing. And then maybe Jesus spit on the ground and touched his own tongue. you got a problem with your, with your tongue. I know that. Maybe. So it could, be that, it could be that Jesus took the guy's hands and put them in his ears. You know, maybe he used the guy's own hands, like helping him. If you've ever seen kids... I worked in a class in, in Richmond when I was an occupational therapist. I worked in a class of kids that were hearing impaired. Some were blind and hearing impaired, like Helen Keller. Try teaching sign language to a child who is blind and hearing and blind and deaf. You want to talk about hard to communicate language to someone who can't see and can't hear. To communicate. So you, there's a lot of gra grabbing of hands. There's a lot of tactile things. And this guy, his eyesight is keen. And so it could be that he's... But they're having a conversation of some sort. You get that? So, however, whatever it is, you know, it could be that it was Jesus put his fingers in the guy's ear and the guy stood there and took it. You know, how did he get him to stick his tongue out? Like, okay, so, so he can touch the guy's tongue. It's possible. I don't know. But it's also possible that Jesus is just communicating with him. And then another part of the communication, look at verse 34. Then Jesus looks up to heaven. That's communication. So, however this is playing out, Jesus is ready to heal the guy. He's trying to communicate that he wants to help him, that he understands he's deaf, understands he can't talk, and now he looks to heaven. He's communicating, here's where your help is coming from. You want help? We look up, and Jesus, in looking up, the guy is drawn, his eyes now are drawn heavenward. Where does my help come from? I lift my eyes up under the heavens. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And so as they're looking up, now he sighs. <sighs> and, he, and he says in Aramaic, Ephetha, which means again, 
be open. Now, the guy didn't hear him say that. He sees his lips move, but he doesn't hear him say that. And in that instant, this man's life is forever changed. Immediately, his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. So in that instant, his ears, boom, all of a sudden the sound is on. Maybe you've gotten into the car and you've left the radio up, and as soon as the car goes on, boom, the, the sound comes on. This must have been, to his senses, overwhelming. Overwhelming emotionally, overwhelming to his senses, but now all of a sudden he hears, and not only that, his tongue was loosed, and that's a word that, um, that can, it sort of speaks of chains or being bound, and it actually can speak of a ligament in, in, in a part of your body that is tightened so that you can't move that part of body. So was there a physical part of his tongue, his, his inability to speak? Possibly. That could have been why Jesus spit. We don't know. But his tongue was now loosed and he spoke clearly. He didn't need speech therapy. He didn't need language lessons. He was able to speak clearly. Uh, who is it that makes the tongue? Who is it? This is what Moses learns, right? Moses says to God, you can't use me. I can't speak. I, I got a speech impediment. I, you know, I, I don't use me. And God says, hey, listen up, Mo. It's exactly what God said. Listen up, Mo. Didn't I make the deaf ear? Didn't I make the mute? So we don't just say, well, this is just an accident of genetics. God said, no, I know exactly what I'm doing. If, if, you've got, if you were born with some physical disability that's for the glory of god and i'll tell you you look at who's you look at who's traveling around the world as motivational speakers none of us mediocre people the people who get glory are those that have overcome difficult circumstances and those that are doing it for the sake of god have this ability to give great glory to god had he never been born, we, we, we don't know. Was he born deaf? Was he deaf from a very young age? Was it a sickness that he got? Was it, we don't know why he's deaf. But whatever it is, it is going to be used for the glory of God. It is going to be, and so I watch videos and I try to, I try to em, embrace in my own life people that inspire me. And those people that are, that are inspiring me, that inspire me, are those that have a great deficit that they overcome with the help of the Lord. And they, they just, it's awesome. And so God says, yeah, I make the deaf. I make the blind. And those things are for my glory. And that's what the man that was born blind learns. And the Pharisees learn from Jesus. I think that's in the Gospel of John. Well, why did this, if he's not, if it's not from his sin or his parents, then why is he born blind? It's for the glory of God. Now, what I didn't tell you yet and I'm going to tell you now, is the word for impediment in his, in his speech is a word only used one time in all the New Testament. There's a different word that means mute or unable to speak. This is the only time that this Greek word, if you could read this in Greek, it means hard to speak, and it's only used here in the New Testament. Nowhere else. Mark uses it. It's only used one other place in the Bible as a whole in the Old Testament, Isaiah 35. Now you might say, well, hey, wait a second, Steve. The Old Testament's in Hebrew. You can't fool us. And you're right, the Old Testament is in Hebrew, but before uh, 130, or by 130 B.C., by the year 130 B.C., the Old Testament had been translated into what? Greek. It's called the Septuagint. 
And these people, Jesus, the disciples, they were all familiar with that translation. So Mark picks up a word from Isaiah 35 and uses it right here. Here's what Isaiah 35 says. This is speaking of the future glory of Israel, the kingdom of God. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened in the kingdom. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the, here's the word, dumb. The tongue tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. What Mark has just done is make a connection between what they're seeing here in, in Mark 7, what they're seeing here with this deaf man, and what Jesus predict, or what uh, Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 35. That there is a coming time. We, we have a hard time even fathoming a, a perfect world. There's a time coming when every tongue will confess. Every tongue. So what, maybe, you, maybe that person is born deaf and, and can't speak, and maybe they die that way. But in the resurrection, in their new body, every tongue will confess. I wonder. You ever sit and think about what is my what is my resurrected body going to look like? My, I'm sure that God is going to redeem male pattern baldness in my life. I don't. I, some of you guys know the story. I, I had a chance to preach in uh, in Italy this last summer. Our family took a not this past summer, previous summer, and we had taken this trip to. Um, to Italy, and uh, I'd been invited to preach at a couple of the Calvary chapels there. One in one was in Rome, and so I'm preaching in Rome, and I, I've, you know, I joke about my my hair a lot, and so I forget. I was, I think I was doing Psalm 139 about how we were created, and and I was talking about some people have all the luck; they're created with hair like Fabio. Now, Fabio, maybe you know, is that male model with the long hair, and, and you know, just this long, beautiful hair, and so it's kind of a joke. You know, I have my hair's falling out; he's got long, beautiful hair. So it's an irony. And so here I am in Rome preaching about hair like Fabio. What I didn't know is there's a guy in the third row whose name is Fabio. And they're all looking at him going, what's so special about his hair? Don't take language for granted. Don't take Now, he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. I'm certain this guy was one of those widely proclaiming it. They... Jesus tells us, go into all the world and tell everyone. And we can't tell anyone. He tells them, don't tell anyone. And they go and tell everyone. Kind of interesting. Verse 37, they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And again, there's that connection to Isaiah 35. And I think if you could put something, when I die, my headstone, my marker. Wouldn't it be great to have this on your headstone? He has done all things well. Beautifully. This is what Jesus did. He did all things well. When he healed someone, they were healed. When he made them walk, they, they jumped and they leaped. When, they, when, they, when their tongue was loose, they sang. That's the effect Jesus has in my life, in your life. He wants to do all things well in your life. And when he does something, he wants to do it to its fullest. He does all things beautifully. And I love that about him. I, I think we should emulate that, don't you? I think we should imitate that. When we do something, if we're going to work, we work heartily unto the Lord. If we're going to do something, we should do it well. Not half-hearted. Why? Because we represent the guy who does all things well. So we want to do it beautifully. We want to give it everything we've got. Amen? Fantastic stories, eh?
Let's pray. Father, I just pray for uh, this word to be sinking into our hearts to understand just the, uh, the tremendousness uh, of, of your healing power and how they in that day were blown away, astonished beyond measure, couldn't comprehend how you could be here healing in such a way, things they'd never seen before. And Lord, we long for that day. We long for the day when your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the meantime, Lord, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Let's stand.